Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Today is Monday, May 17, 2021. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, the latest in the Palestinian-Israeli relations and American attitudes on both sides of the issue. African Americans are weighing in as well. In North Carolina, two wrongly incarcerated brothers get $75 million after a federal jury sides with them. A 17-year-old and a student who were shot and killed by police 50 years ago received posthumous doctorate degrees and an apology at Jackson State University. And in Texas, lawmakers passed the Botham Jean Act. It's now headed to the Texas Senate. Plus, Tamika Mallory joins me to talk about her new book, State of Emergency. And in our Fit Live Win segment, Jim Jones tells us how to get rid of those last 10 pounds before the summer. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. $75 million. That's what a federal jury awarded two black men in wrongly incarcerated in North Carolina. Uh, folks, uh, they were wrongly convicted of raping and murdering an 11-year-old girl. Maintaining their innocence since 1983, Henry McCollum and Leon Brown have been given $31 million each for each uh, $31 million bucks for uh, each, each year they uh, spent in jail. Now, in addition, they are receiving $13 million in punitive damages and $9 million from a settlement with the Roberson County Sheriff's Office. The brothers say authorities took advantage of their intellectual disability and coerced them into their confession, insisting they did not understand the signed confessions at the time. The $75 million settlement is the largest sum of money awarded to a wrongfully convicted person in North Carolina history. Uh, folks, this is, of course, uh, the latest in numerous cases along these lines. Uh, we've seen uh, black men incarcerated uh, in other states as well, Unfortunately, all have not been able to receive the financial benefits necessary after spending so many days in prison. My panel, Amos Jones, Weaver, political analyst, also joining us, um, uh, Teresa Lundy, principal founder of TML Communications, and will later be joined by Julianne Malveaux. Uh, Teresa, th th this is one of those uh, cases where when you, when you hear a story like this, um, you know, again, that's a long time to spend in prison. And some other folks haven't gotten anything near that in terms of the kind of resources uh, to help. Yeah, I mean, well, one, congratulations to the two brothers. But one, of course, it is unfortunate that the situation even happened to happen to them. Uh, I think there is opportunity it, uh, for other counties and other cities and states to really start to look at um, their, their judgment calls. Um, because it does take a toll on the citizens that, you know, have to go through this trial. Um, but I, I think, again, as we looked at some of these critical roles in criminal justice reform, we start to really understand some of the consequences of some of these actions. And I'm hoping that the police departments are doing the, uh, their um, uh, review on some of these issues as well. Well, look, what's so sad here, uh, Amos, is you can't get those years back. 
It's as simple as that. You can't get those years back. Uh, and the only way to really uh, help somebody is monetarily. And unfortunately, in some other cases, uh, folks aren't getting their uh, fair share or just do after serving uh, decades in prison. You're exactly right. I'm so glad that these brothers were at least able to get uh, this level of compensation. And you're right. Unfortunately, this is unusual um, that people would receive, uh, relatively speaking, such a high level of compensation as compared to what others often get. But really, there there is no price that you can put on each and every minute uh, that they spent in prison when they shouldn't have been there. And they also deserve compensation, and I'm glad that this maybe was was um, included in this particular price tag. The fact that this particular crime was so heinous, uh, one can imagine that their reputations might be irreparably damaged. So at least I'm glad that with these brothers, they are finding some level of delayed justice, but justice nonetheless. And I hope that for others, they're able to do the same. And there's going to be a lot more um, focus on this. And, and unfortunately, Teresa, uh, we're seeing more and more people uh, being uh, suing who were wrongfully incarcerated due to uh, shameful actions by uh, police as well as uh, DA's offices. Yeah, and we're going to continuously see those type of actions actually happen where people are deciding, you know, to pick up the phone and they're calling Ben Crump and they're calling other civil rights lawyers and they're saying an injustice has been um, done years before. And so now attorneys are looking at cases. You know, you have some of these nonprofit organizations, the Innocent Project, who's really opening up the books to some of the the, the injustices that has been happening. And it's, very, it's going to get costly. You know, so, I mean, the, the, the state legislator has to also understand that, you know, some of these cases that they, you know, when you could just put people in prison for 10 to 15 years and think they're going to forget about it. No, someone... Uh, inside of the prison, that people are doing their own cases, their own review points, um, and they're just not waiting anymore. So it's going to get very costly, and I'm glad it is because, you know, like Ava said, um, that people are, you know, um, starting to put... Um, there's no cost. There's no cost to um, how much you owe a person. But, again, if there is a monetary settlement that can be happened, it absolutely should. Uh, well, again, as we certainly hope... Uh, that those two men are able to uh, move on with their lives. Unfortunately, uh, they had to serve a long time in prison, uh, and they never, ever did it. Folks, a Hennepin County judge has set a tentative trial date for the former Minneapolis cop responsible for the death of Dante Wright. A pre-trial hearing for Kim Potter took place via video conference today, where Judge Regina Chu determined there was enough probable cause to support charges against the former officer. Potter fatally shot Wright last month during an attempt to take him into custody. She claimed she thought she pulled her taser rather than her gun. Potter is charged with second-degree manslaughter, an offense that carries a maximum prison sentence of 10 years. Her tentative trial date is set for December 6th. Folks, also in Minneapolis, the fatal shooting of Dante Wright is making the city of Brooklyn Center change how it approaches public safety. On Saturday, Brooklyn Center's City Council passed the Dante Wright and Kobe Demick Heisler Community Safety and Violence Prevention Act, a sweeping public safety resolution that will revamp the city's police force with more independent oversight. The resolution, introduced by Mayor Mike Elliott, creates new departments for community safety to oversee the police and fire departments. It also includes a division of unarmed civilians to handle non-moving traffic violations and respond to mental health distress calls. Or Elliot is calling it a new North Star for policing. That point there, Avis, uh, that last point there, creating a division of unarmed civilians 
to handle non-moving traffic violations and mental health uh, distress calls? Yeah, this is what people who have been asked to be called, talk about defund the police, what they're talking about. Figure out different ways of interacting with people and not just send cops with guns and badges. Absolutely. So this is really what people mean when they talk about reimagining, literally, policing and making sure that there are different ways in which uh, we can develop systems for individuals to be seen by either mental health care professionals, if they're having some sort of mental health disturbance, or other people who are not armed and, you know, likely to, to you know, just pop off and shoot and kill somebody for no good reason based on a very, very minor, very minor violation. Uh, I'm glad to see that uh, the mayor has moved forward in this way and this particular city is moving forward in this way under the, you know, the eyes of the world, quite frankly, are on them, specifically given the timing of this particular murder and where they're located. Um, but I'm hoping that as this continues to move forward, that other cities will begin to to move in this direction as well, because at the bottom line is this is the type of thing that what, you know, we hope that we get the Justice and Policing Act signed, but the bottom line is this is something that cities need to handle on a city-by-city city and state-by-state state basis to really proliferate the nation as it should. And I'm hoping this can be a model for others to continue to move in that direction as well. And, and Julian, um, cities should be doing this before someone is fatally killed. I mean, that that's the issue here. They should be thinking about different ways uh, to, to, to react to the public as opposed to always basing it on sending a cop and then, then we see what happens when that happens. Exactly. I mean, I think it makes no sense whatsoever for us to um, do these cleanup, well, I call them the cleanup acts. You know, something happens and you go try to clean it up. Well, you're never going to get the person's life back, so we really need to be careful up front. And um, I'm glad that they, the mayor especially, has shown a light on this, but there's so much more that needs to be done. As Avis says, the Justice and Policing Act, you know, must be passed. It may or may not be given the Senate, uh, but this is something I would expect uh, President Biden to go on a limb for, given just the proliferation of these kinds of deaths. But it's more than just the Justice and Policing Act. It's really about starting over at some level with police attitudes, really trying to um, essentially retrain the police or fire some of them change the ways that people qualify to be police officers. You have a bunch of uneducated, very young, white police officers who are taught all their bad habits, and then they basically go run around killing people. Although they're not all very young, this woman in, um, the Miss Porter, Miss Potter, whomever, who shot the young man thinking her taser was a gun, please, um, she's 40-some years old. She ought to know better. You know, Teresa, um... Again, it's very interesting how people have been critical of those who yell defund the police, but they say nothing when those calls have actually led to changes by police departments. If they don't call for those things and demand those changes, these things don't happen. Right. So advocates, community organizations, and of course, you know, our, our media personalities need to continuously call them out because if we do not call them out where they are, then these issues and we're still having these conversations and we're still having these dialogues and nothing's ever going to be fixed. So yes, the marches work, the rallies work. I think there was a, a, a blog that I was reading the other day 
And somebody said, you know, uh, do, does these items work? Does the protesting back in, you know, the 50s and 60s work? And, and yes, they do work. Because like you said, Roland, if we don't bring it to the forefront, if we don't identify the problem, there's no way we can find the solution. So yes, um, I think some of the mental health and the autism trained advocates are something that, you know, again, they're, they're getting funding. They're getting nonprofit funding to do it. But now you have people who work within those organizations now in the neighborhoods and the communities to, to react to the situation first, since unfortunately some of that training isn't um, happening inside of the um, precincts. Well, and this also, Avis, is why people who are activists must keep doing what they're doing. Look, you're going to have political, political people who are going to whine and complain about saying, oh, these things are wrong. But no, when you're out there in the streets, you, that, that's what your job is. Your job is not to make political, political folks comfortable. Yeah, well, you know, to me, it really takes people on both sides of the power dynamic, right? You need people in the streets putting pressure from the outside. Uh, to influence people on the inside who are working in tandem for the things that you care about. And so that's really what it takes. You have to really force people to change. Just like Frederick Douglass said, uh, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. And that demand takes place in various different forms, including protests, which are absolutely essential to changing this centuries-old killing machine, quite frankly, uh, that was born of uh, being able to track down and murder people who were enslaved and trying to get to freedom uh, to this very day when oftentimes we are killed for no reason at all. So kudos to the protesters and also to, kudos to those on the inside, uh, like this particular mayor and also like the attorney general of Minnesota, who are able to do the things that are necessary to make sure that we have progress in this movement. Absolutely. All right, folks, got to go to break. We come back. We're going to talk about what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, a lot of African-Americans are weighing in on how heavy-handed Israel is against the people of Palestine. We'll discuss that next right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Are you trying to say that as of January 20th, that President Trump will be president? That depends on what happens on Wednesday. President Trump won this election. Do you think the election was stolen? Absolutely. At this point, we do not know who has prevailed in the election. This fraud was systemic, and I dare say it was effective. This is a contested election. President Trump won by a landslide. Hold him this way. The outcome of our presidential election was seized from the hands of voters. We have to make sure that they look into what has been the theft of this presidential election. Joe Biden lost and President Trump won. Whatever happens to President Trump, he is still the elected president. I would love to see this election overturned. No one believes that this guy got 80 million votes. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. No ragtime group of liberal activists will be allowed to steal this election. The president wasn't defeated by huge numbers. In fact, he may not have been defeated at all. Over the next 10 days, we get to see the ballots that are fraudulent. And if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. Carl Payne pretended to be Roland Martin. Holla! Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Folks, we have seen a lot of violence take place in Israel. 
uh, as massive attacks have been taking place between Israel and the Palestinian people. International calls for ceasefire have come due to a long-standing tension between Israel and Palestine culminating. Attacks began after the two nations clashed at a holy site for Muslims and Jews. After warning Israel to withdraw from the site, Hamas, the nationalist organization that controls Gaza, began firing rockets, causing Israel to retaliate. More than 50 warplanes attacked the Gaza Strip for 20 minutes, destroying more than nine miles of an underground tunnel network. Palestinian militants also hit the homes of nine high-ranking commanders. More than 3,000 rockets have been fired into Israel in the past week, causing widespread power cuts and damage to homes and other buildings. Uh, also, over the weekend, uh, a lot of people have been demanding um, Israel be held accountable for destroying a building that houses Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and other media outlets. Israel claims Hamas was using that particular site uh, as a military outpost. Others disagree. Well, joining me now to discuss what's going on here uh, is uh, Mitchell P uh, Pitnick. He's co-author of Ex Ex uh, excuse me, Except for Palestine. He's also president of Rethinking Foreign Policy, and a little bit will be joined by Mark Lamont. He is the co-author of that book. Folks, show the book, please, if we have it. Um, the, the thing here uh, that I find to be interesting, Mitchell, uh, is we, we sort of had probably for the first time a significant amount of criticism of Israel by mainstream media in this country. Normally, mainstream media in America is just like American politicians, absolutely positively on the side of uh, Israel. That has not been the case in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, it hasn't. And it's been changing um, over the past maybe 10 years or so, but very slowly. I think what we're what we're seeing now is the cumulative effect of a number of Israeli assaults on Gaza. Um, you know, the 2008, 2012, 2014, um, it keeps happening. And more and more Americans have seen it. And as a result of Americans seeing it, it's harder for the mainstream media to uh, to to maintain the sort of coverage that they did, uh, that they used to have, that was as you you know as you're describing it, very biased towards Israel. And I think you know it's it's impossible to get away from the fact that more and more people in the United States um, are speaking out against this and saying, hey, you know, it's it's not uh, acceptable that Israel is doing this to a civilian population. Now, the thing that um, is interesting here is that. Israel's position is consistently, we're defending ourselves, were it not for rockets being fired, then we would not have to retaliate. Um, that is always their position. Um, the fact is that this situation was brewing for quite a while before last week. Um, it stems from really two different things. Israel um, has been trying to displace a bunch of Palestinian families from the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, and that caused a lot of unrest. But also, Israel was impeding access uh, to holy sites uh, in, in Jerusalem uh, during the month of Ramadan. And that really was inflaming tensions very badly. And eventually, um, they, they got to the point where Israel was actually firing weapons inside the mosque on the Temple Mount. And that set off, um, that's when Hamas uh, said either the police presence uh, is, is reduced or we're going to fire rockets. And they did, in fact, fire some rockets at Jerusalem, and all of this came up. The, the, it's also, I think, really important to remember that when we talk about self-defense, self-defense doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Um, self-defense for Israel is largely 
composed of the uh, the Iron Dome system. Most of we hear about all of these rockets flying out of Gaza. Most of them never reach their targets, either because they're uh, they're very poorly made. Uh, they're they're kind of knocked up, knocked knocked together. They're not very uh, uh, you know up to date technologically, uh, but also because Israel's Iron Dome system uh, knocks down these missiles. And you know that's great. I mean, protecting civilians is what uh, is what should be done. It's a problem because only one side can do that. And then when the side that can do that is laying an all out assault on. Uh, on civilian targets in Gaza. And I think it's really, really important to note that last week an Israeli, um, a, a spokesman for the Israel Defense Forces actually said, you know, we're just, we're, we're making Gaza shake. We're not trying to launch pinpoint attacks. Um, that was the IDF's own spokesperson. Now he said this in Hebrew, so it didn't get any coverage outside of Israel. But uh, that's, I think, a very, very important point that people need to know. So, you know, this this claim of self-defense is just completely hollow. It just isn't so. Uh, joining us right now is Mark Lamont Hill. He is the Mitchell's co-author of the book, Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. Uh, Mark, uh, it, it's been very interesting uh, reading a lot of the different comments. And the number of African-Americans uh, who are very much siding with the Palestinians uh, on this issue. That has long been an uh, issue, in, uh, you know, uh, in this country. I explain to folks who don't quite understand uh, this relationship that has always existed between African-Americans and the Palestinian people. Well, it's, it's, it's a great question, Roland. It's always good to see you. Uh, I would say that that relationship really came into focus in 1967 and, and slightly earlier in 1954, after, in 1954, 1955, after the Bandung Conference. You know, for a long time in the early part of the 20th century, many black leaders were allied with uh, with, with 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 Jews uh, around the diaspora in their quest to create a state of Israel. If you think about um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who writes a really important essay or article uh, on, on the case for Israel, essentially is the, uh, is the article he's, he's writing, a case for the Jews. Um, when you think about Marcus Garvey and all these other leaders, what they saw was a, a dispossessed people, a hated people, uh, Jews around the world who were being harassed, who were a minority, who were who were not being treated with dignity, humanity, etc. And he saw them decide to create their own land. And so for people like Garvey, it was like, oh, wait a minute, there's a possibility here. For people who are racial minorities, there are people who have been minoritized, there are people who have been hated, people being killed, and, and to create their own thing, that's a model for us. And so the idea of a black Zion was appealing to them. You also had the fact that many Jewish Americans were siding with black folk uh, working with the Niagara Movement, working with the NAACP, uh, standing with Dr. King, etc. And so we had a kind of intimacy that came from on-the-ground politics as well as a kind of grand vision of what a freedom dream could look like when you take your stuff and go somewhere else. And so many Black people sided with that. But the problem was, as time went on and we, we understood more, we began to realize that what was happening wasn't just a project of liberation. It wasn't just an exodus story but it was a story of settler colonialism, a, a story of displacement and dislocation and colonial violence. And you began to see that in the Bandung Conference when you saw brown and black people say, hey, wait a minute, we gotta come together. You saw it when Malcolm X writes a letter in September of 1964 called uh, On Zionist Logic. You saw it when SNCC, after, after the Six Day War of 1967, when Israel defeats the neighboring, you know, Syria, uh, Jordan, uh, Egypt, uh, when, when, when you see that, when, when you see the uh, kind of response to that, the response to that, um, you saw a SNCC right in their summer newsletter, right, about neocolonialism. 
you saw Ethel Miner in particular write a Q&A saying, look, this is wrong. Malcolm X, was before he passed away, was speaking out. Dr. King in 68, when he, when he he wrote a letter back to the prime minister saying he wasn't going to go back to what he, to the Holy Land. And he had some concerns about East Jerusalem. He said, I don't think they're ever giving that back. He didn't want to be associated with the violence of the state. So you began to see the pivot really in the 1950s, but certainly the 1960s of black folks saying, hey, wait a minute. And then by the, when you talk about diasporically, for example, black folk in South Africa, Africans in South Africa said, look, we know what apartheid looks like. And so when that is why when, when Nelson Mandela came home and they had did that big interview and they said, why are you siding with the PLO? Why are you standing next to, to Palestinians? He said, y'all ain't gonna tell me who my enemies are. Y'all ain't gonna tell me who my friends are. We stand with the Palestinian people, but also they stood with us. Desmond Tutu has done that. So that relationship is about understanding what racism looks like, what state violence looks like, what marginalization looks like, what displacement and dislocation looks like. And so today, when black folks stand with Palestinians, they're standing on the side of right and, and they're standing on a tradition of black folk loving freedom. Uh, Mitchell, one of the things that, that uh, as I said, as Mark was talking, uh, I, I thought about, uh, you know, the, the vicious criticism uh, that uh, President Jimmy Carter received uh, when he wrote his particular book, uh, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. Uh, and that angered uh, a lot of people, especially a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, Christians. Uh, and, and in fact, there, there are many uh, Christians uh, white conservative evangelical Christians who have taken up the cause uh, of, uh, of of the Israelis uh, in some cases far more fervently uh, than um, than American Jews because of uh, because of because of the Bible. Uh, and, and I remember when Carter wrote that book and and folks tr trashed him, and he simply said, "You cannot say it's right for Israel to have a right to his existence and to have people." Living in an area where they basically have no control over, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, of themselves, that they, 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 they literally uh, are settlements are uh, being taken. I, I remember when President George H. W. Bush, when he lost in 1990, uh, excuse me, when he lost uh, to President Bill Clinton in 1992, he held up the money, the three billion dollars annually that goes from the United States to Israel because of the settlements. And I remember they put 5,000 folks on Capitol Hill uh, the following day to say release that money. And so the, 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 you've had some interesting uh, tensions there that have existed in this country when it comes to what happens with Israel and Palestine. Yeah, that, that is very true. Um, I think there's a couple of things that we can learn from those stories, though. First, um, you know, when it comes to uh, George H.W. Bush, yeah, they, they sent those 5,000 lobbyists there and... and uh, Mr. Bush was 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 eager to let everyone know that 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 had happened. Uh, that being said, he still went ahead and, and held up the money until Israel uh, did what what we wanted them to do. And it's it's really important, I think, to note that yes, political pressure can be brought to bear. But when the administration decides that this is the course they wish to pursue, uh, they can pursue it. That is a choice. It is not uh, uh, it, it's not a, a a diktat by any means. Um, when when Bush wanted to do, you know, when Bush wanted to hold up that money, he did until Israel gave in. In the end, we are the ones holding the cards, and that also makes us responsible. So that makes it uh, that that puts that puts the onus on the United States when our president Joe Biden is essentially giving the green light to everything Israel is doing. Um, that 
we are the ones, we the people are the ones that have to put a stop to that. You know, when it comes to President Carter, I had the honor of, of meeting President Carter and, and discussing this with him. And, you know, Jimmy Carter loves Israel, actually. Um, people may not realize this. Um, and it hurt him. Every, every time he was he was not just called an anti-Semite, but every time he was even called anti-Israel, it hurt him. Um, he was clearly very upset about this, um, but he did what he felt was right. And he and and his. If you read the book, you'll see that he frames it in terms of trying to trying to save Israel from becoming an apartheid state. And of course, now he's being borne out. Human Rights Watch and the Israeli uh, human rights group B'Tselem have both come out and said. That uh, that Israel is in fact an apartheid state, and many American Jews, you know, I'm I'm not an outlier anymore. I um, uh, many of us are saying yes, Israel is an apartheid state. These policies are not okay. Do not take them in my name, and this is not the way to combat anti-Semitism. We we take you know I take anti-Semitism very seriously. I don't know a Jew that doesn't. Um, but this is not, you know slaughtering Palestinians is not the way to to combat it. Mark, what's next? Uh, because obviously it, it continues. Uh, are you going to I mean, We've seen massive protests uh, all around the country uh, in Los Angeles, here in Washington, D.C., New York City, other places as well. Yeah, we're going to see more protests. Obviously, some of the protests were also hung upon the fact that uh, May 15th was Nekba Day or the day uh, of the great catastrophe of Palestinian loss. Uh, as well as uh, Israeli Independence Day, and so you know there were com there were commemorations that accompanied the protests. But when you have seven straight days of, of bombardment of siege of, of excessive siege, Gaza is always under siege, but excessive siege and bombardment, you're going to see protests. You're going to see them not just in the United States, but around the world, and certainly around uh, Israel and Palestine. I think what's next, though, is the Biden administration uh, at some point is going to have to take, uh, if not a courageous move, at least a, a prudent one, and actually call publicly and loudly for a ceasefire something that they have yet to full-throatedly full do. Uh, we, we also need to see uh, humanitarian organizations intervene. Uh, there, there are 35,000, or actually now 42,000 uh, Gazans internally displaced. That goes along with the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who are, in, who are internally displaced refugees already. So when you talk about this, next is policy shift. Next is more protest, but sadly, Roland, uh, unless we see something sharply different, in the next week or so, we're going to see a lot more violence and a lot more death. And as, as Mitchell pointed out, given the, the, the imbalances in power, most of those deaths are going to be Palestinian deaths. Absolutely. Uh, folks, uh, again, uh, it is uh, a, a, a significant situation that's happening uh, there, uh, and uh, the battle continues. Uh, we certainly want to thank Mitchell and Mark for joining us. They're the authors of the book, Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. Uh, gentlemen, I certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Look at my panel here. Julian, I want to start with you. You've had some Democrat Democrats uh, in Congress, uh, Jewish Democrats, uh, who have taken uh, a position uh, that uh, is different than what uh, they've normally done in the past. Oh, yeah. Ayanna Presley uh, tweeted uh, last week. Um, her exact quote was, uh, we can't stand idly by when the United States government sends $3.8 billion of military aid to Israel that is used to demolish Palestinian homes, uh, imprison Palestinian children, and displace Palestinian families. We have very rarely seen this kind of support uh, for Palestinians. No, 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 again, no, no, first of all, Aliana Presley is an African-American. I'm talking about Jewish Democrats who have sure. been very vocal on this issue as well. 
I mean, in fact, uh, in fact, this is a letter. This is a tweet sent out May 14th by Jerry Nadler. Uh, the Biden administration can and should do more to stop the pain and suffering of Israelis and Palestinians. I led a group of Jewish members on a letter to POTUS urging immediate de-escalation and diplomatic engagement. Uh, Schumer is, um, okay. Go ahead. Sh uh, Chuck Schumer and 20 other uh, Senate senators have called for a ceasefire. That's highly unusual. I mean, this is, but it's ridiculous. As your previous guest said, you know, 10 Palestinians have died. Two, I mean, 10 Israelis have died. Over 200 Palestinians have died, and the numbers are growing. Um, this just makes no sense at all. And I don't understand. Uh, President uh, Biden spoke to Netanyahu today. I don't understand why he has, after that, not called for a ceasefire. It doesn't work to say we're just going to stay out of this and see how it plays itself out. Right. Because we know how it's going to play itself out. There could uh, be more deaths. Teresa, this is a protest in London. Some 100,000 people uh, took to the streets there. As I said, we've seen protests across the United States uh, as well. Um, and Israel is losing the PR war, uh, but they don't care. No, they don't. Teresa? Oh, I'm sorry, that was for me. Uh, <laughs> yes, they don't care. Um, so over the weekend, actually, in Philadelphia, we've had um, some rallies and protests as well. And when I tell you the the, the PR for Israel has literally um, went out the door, there were passionate, passionate stories that were happening just, just all across. And again, being here um, with our own issues here in the city of Philadelphia, gun violence and the sort. But when we are talking about inter international issues, it was you know, people coming from Bucks County and different surrounding counties. And you're starting to see um, not only just the heart strain, but the passion about the subject matter and how careful people are in their speech. So it is probably the opportunity, you know, um, that, you know, again, I think the great opportunity is happening when the senators are coming together and say, hey, let's use fire, let's come to the table, let's, let's do something different because this isn't working. Because I think if we um, wait for the end results, to happen, um, it's not going to be in, in the favor of where we need it to be in. Uh, this is video here, Abus, of, a, of a, a big protest in Patterson, New Jersey. Mm. Wow. It, it is wonderful to see uh, people, once again, uh, raising their voice, using their uh, First Amendment rights here to protest uh, what they find to be unconscionable uh, and very disturbing and deadly attacks. Uh, on the Palestinian people. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that may be um, moving into the reason why we're beginning to see um, less of a staunchly, just blindly pro-Israel approach with regards to uh, the American media, as well as with some um, politicians on Capitol Hill, is that there, I believe, is some very broad recognition of the fact that um, Benjamin Netanyahu is a very, very right-wing politician. Um, people understand that he is a, an extremely right-wing person who is very 
uh, dangerous and deadly in terms of his behavior. And be beginning, um, and the fact that this, as was mentioned previously, is not an isolated incident. This is an ongoing uh, series of incidents that we have seen over the years. I think those two things together have put people in a position where they can finally say, it's time for us to sort of take our heads out of the sand and really look critically at what's going on here. And when you do that, and you see not only the disparities in death, but the disparities in the number of children, Palestinian children yeah. that have yeah. been killed, you see the media being targeted, you see all of these things happening, that under any other circumstances, uh, Americans would be, you know, the, the American government would overtly say is wrong, but they're holding themselves back right now because of this dynamic. I think a lot of politicians are saying, finally, it's time for us to speak up. Absolutely. All right, folks, let's go to our next story. In Canada, authorities are apologizing for wrongfully detaining the first black judge named to the British Columbia Supreme Court. Folks, <laughs> you think this happens in the U.S.? No. Five Vancouver police officers detained 81-year-old Selwyn Romilly while he was taking his morning walk. The officers said they responded to a complaint about a man in his 40s to 50s that fit the judge's description. Y'all, the man's 81 years old. Now, I, know black, I know black don't crack, but I'm just saying. The mayor of Vancouver addressed the incident, in a, and he said this in a statement. Quote, I am appalled by how Vancouver police officers wrongfully detained and handcuffed retired Justice Selwyn Romilly. Such incidents are unacceptable and cannot continue to happen. Last night, I reached out to Justice Romilly to apologize after I was made aware of the situation. This is not something anyone should be forced to go through. Incidents like this can be very damaging. It can be a very, very, very damaging experience, especially for those in the indigenous black and person of color communities who already face multiple barriers and discrimination. Y'all, the real suspect was eventually arrested. The judge does not plan to file any formal complaints. I, you get an 81-year-old confused with a man in his 40s and 50s. Let, let, let's just be honest here, Avis. They saw a black. They ain't see nothing else. Absolutely. I mean, th this problem is universal. It's not something that's relegated to the United States of America. I will say in all my travels that I have had all around the world in various different cultures and continents, uh, the one thing that is stunningly consistent is the way that white supremacy works. It's evil head. And it, it is consistent. This is why I think also that there are so many people around the world who also protests with regards to our Black Lives Matter movement here because they know that similar things happen in their homeland. So it's horrible to see this judge harassed and arrested uh, for no other reason, obviously, than the color of his skin. Uh, Teresa. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. I mean, there's nothing more to say. Uh, unfortunately, again, this is not a local issue. This is a, a, a national issue, international issue that happens to people of color, um, more so black people more than often. Um, the fact that this is a judge, um, I, I, am, I want to see what his reaction is. I, I actually am looking for that statement um, because I am sure him and his capacity, he has something to say, um, and I'm sure people want to hear it. Julianne? This is, again, as, as my colleagues have said, this is horrible but unsur unsurprising. Uh, this is a black man. It is, he doesn't look like he's 50 years old. I mean, as you said, black don't crack, but, you know, look at him. The fact is that they saw black. All they saw was black, and they decided just to stop the man and, and handcuff him. And 
Blessedly, he had the presence of mind, of course, he is a judge, to say, look, I'm a judge. And blessedly, of course, they finished doing whatever they were doing in a matter of, of seconds, maybe a minute or two. So that's all good. But it does not avoid the fact that the mayor had to apologize. Here we go again with the apologies. The mayor had to apologize that, that we still don't have any accountability from these so-called law enforcement officers. I mean, what do they have to say? Why did they do this? Easy. They said, oh, we <laughs> thought it was him. But we know what that all we know what that's all about. All right, y'all. Let's go to Texas. A former Dallas County prosecutor is dis disbarred from practicing law in Texas with holding vital evidence in a case where two homeless black men were sentenced to life in prison. Richard Jackson surrendered his law license after the Supreme Court of Texas concluded that he failed to inform Dennis Allen and Stanley Mosey's defense attorneys about evidence that could have cleared them at their capital murder trials in 2000. The men spent 14 years in prison for the fatal stabbing of a pastor. They were released in 2014 after DNA testing helped clear them. According to the Innocence Project, Jackson is one of just four prosecutors disbarred for misconduct that resulted in a wrongful conviction. See, this is the thing we were, I was talking about earlier with the North Carolina story. Um, you know, Avis, the, DA's, the DA is supposed to uphold the law. The Supreme Court, above, uh, at the top of the building, says equal justice under law. And here we have a white prosecutor so hell-bent on a conviction that withholds, withholds evidence. This guy spent 14 years in prison, and they didn't do it. Absolutely. And what's really harrowing to me is the logical uh, leap that one could take that, you know, what are the odds that this is the only time he did this and this happened to be caught? I mean, I, I believe that all of the cases that he prosecuted uh, should be examined deeply because I can guarantee you this was not a one-time thing. As you've just mentioned, the goal here was to get a conviction. The goal was not to get justice. The goal was to get anyone they could, they could get to find guilty by any means necessary, even if that meant to keep out of the hands of uh, the defense or to the judge or anyone else uh, evidence that they had, which specifically showed that these were not the people that were guilty of that heinous crime. So, you know, to me, I'm glad that he's disbarred, but that's not all that needs to happen. They need to go back and make sure that every case that he prosecuted is examined because I can guarantee you other people are sitting in jail today that shouldn't be there. See, this is part of the problem, Julian. Um, prosecutors want us to trust their judgment. <laughs> they, they want us to trust that things were done above board. And this DA withholds evidence, could have cleared these guys, totally ignores it, and they go to for jail for 14 years, all he gets is being disbarred. I'm sorry. To me, this is where you actually put a law in that if, that if a DA withholds evidence, they should go to jail. Well, I'm with you on that. I really do think this guy needs to spend some jail time. It's absurd that he deliberately, I mean, deliberately withheld evidence. Um, it's not like the cases where somebody made a mistake, where someone come back, you know, five years later and says a mistaken identity or something like that. This is willful, evil, willful, evil withholding of evidence that cost these brothers, you know, 14 years.
they should be paid. Not only should they be paid, he should spend some time up under the jail. Uh, Teresa. Yeah, I agree. Legislators, this is the time to act. If anybody was looking for a, a case uh, within their state um, to actually stand up for justice, stand up for reform, these this would, would be the case. Because you have, again, across the country, you have some prosecutors who are new to, to, to the well, I say, uh, new to the bench in, in, in so many ways, but new to being a prosecutor. And they have a conviction record that they have to meet. Those are goals that they have to meet. And unfortunately, these two young men, I believe the crime uh, was stabbing 47 times a, a black pastor. And it's like, it, it's like, well, one, this is the, the character train that this person is obviously something's going on in their mind when really these kids are just wrongfully convicted. So now not only do they have, you know, uh, the, the psych evaluations that probably is coming, that did come to them in the 14 years that they were in prison, but now they have this 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 notion and this character assassination that they're going to have to rebrand themselves as, you know, as, as being uh, sane because this is a heinous act. So, again, I think if any legislator was able to step up um, and say, look, um, I, I want to put a law to make sure not only is this prosecutor getting um, disbarred, but we're now putting a law in to make sure that anybody that takes this position moving forward now receives this, the same equal justice, um, and that includes prison time and any other crimes that they seem deem fit that fits the crime that happens in the future. Uh, absolutely. So it, you know, it is just it's just sad that they had to spend 14 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit uh, because uh, you had uh, an unethical uh, prosecutor who now does not have his law license. Let's stay in Texas where lawmakers have passed the Botham Jean Act, a bill named after the black man killed inside his apartment by an off-duty Dallas police officer uh, three years ago. HB 929, also known as Bo's Law, ensures officers keep their body-worn cameras activated during investigations. Texas's House of Representatives passed it on Friday by a vote of 108-34. Before it reaches Governor Greg Abbott's desk, the act will have to pass through the, through the Texas Senate. So we'll see exactly what happens there. All right, folks, nearly 50 years after a 17-year-old and a student were shot and killed by police at Jackson State in Mississippi, the school honored them at a graduation ceremony on Saturday. Philip Gibbs and James Green received posthumous honorary doctorate degrees at Jackson State's commencement this weekend. Please roll the video, folks. Both were shot during a campus protest of racial injustice in 1970. After a protester threw a bottle toward the police, the shooting broke out, resulting in Gibbs and Green's death and 12 other injuries. Okay, the script says... Upon the recommendation of the faculty of Jackson State University, and by the virtue of the authority vested in me by the institutions of higher learning and the state of Mississippi as president, I hereby confer upon the members of the class of 1970 the respective degree, academic degrees for which they have been recommended with all the rights, privileges, responsibilities, and obligations appertaining thereunto. Congratulations, and let us all stand and salute the members Philip Gibbs and James Green, they received those posthumous honorary doctorate degrees at Jackson State's commencement over the weekend. But, of course, again, folks, just a stunning when they were shot in 1970. Now, you may not know anything about that, 
because the shooting took place one week after the shooting at Kent State, which, which, which made national attention. This is largely being overlooked. Of course, the shooting broke out, resulting in Gibbs and Green's death and 12 other injuries. The commencement ceremony for the class of 1970 was canceled, with students getting diplomas in the mail. 74 people from that class attended Saturday's ceremony to walk across the stage as two politicians issued a form of apology, including uh, the mayor of Jackson. Uh, this is, um, Julian, this is one of those examples, again, of what happens when you're black in this country. I mean, Kent State is seared into the minds of Americans. It always gets brought up. There have been documentaries about it. People have always did reference it. But very few know about this police shooting and killing at Jackson State one week after Kent State. No, Jackson State didn't get the attention that it deserved at all. I was actually living in Mississippi at the time, in 1970. Footnote, got put out of so many high schools, they had to send me to Mississippi. But um, I was living there, and one of my aunts had been on the faculty there, and people were horrified, but it really did not make national news. It seemed that many people believed it was okay to shoot children, because they were children, young people. One of them was a high school student. Shoot them because somebody threw a bottle. They weren't even the ones who threw the bottle. But because someone threw a bottle, two, two young people ended up dying. And um, whenever Kent State is mentioned, I make it my business to say, and what about Jackson State? Because if we have to teach these people, if we have to teach them the hard way, that you cannot have unequal justice. You simply can't. Uh, and this is why uh, our media is so important, uh, Avis, because, again, uh, for the longest, again, there, there's so many people who have grown up, all they've heard is Kent State, Kent State, Kent State, and never talk about Jackson State. Absolutely. And, and this is exactly right. Why black media is so important. And it's also why isn't so important that we have a retelling, a true telling of history in this nation. It, it, it you know, it, it kind of makes me think of stories that you've covered here also about all of these different laws that have popped up and bubbled up all across uh, the nation in various states trying to outlaw the teaching of critical race theory or trying to outlaw 1619 Project because they do not want real full history to be taught throughout this nation. And when you don't do that, you have very unjust oversights just like this happen, which creates a situation, as you mentioned, where, and everyone can remember, or have heard at least, have heard about Kent State. Very, very few people even know about uh, what happened at Jackson State uh, when the two happened virtually at the very same time. And, and Teresa, thank goodness those folks uh, got a chance to walk across that stage. Uh, that is something that is important, whether you're talking about high school or college. Uh, and for them to finally get that opportunity, that was great. Yeah, it was an amazing sight to watch. Um, but again, if you know the history or if you at least heard of the history, um, you, you would also feel that, that same type of compassion and that type of love. Um, of enjoyment, even if you, you had a chance to watch it. So, again, history needs to um, be repeated and it needs to be necessarily taught and, and we need to be further educated um, in continuing that, you know, we never forget these moments. Absolutely. All right, folks, uh, let's go to San Diego where drivers that there are starting to see new billboards with black parents holding their babies. The campaign was created by the city's uh, perinatal equity initiative to address disparities in the health outcomes of black babies and mothers. The billboards, which went up earlier this month, include statements showing racial discrimination leads to higher rates of miscarriages and maternal deaths among black women. 
Some of the signs say our black babies are nearly 60% more likely to, to be premature due to discrimination and racism hurts your baby long before they're born. The program's website states the data comes from state and county health departments. Uh, this is the sort of information that should be uh, uh, up front with people. Um, uh, Avis, because this is how we are being impacted. And so, and to make it clear, is, is, for so many wh wh white folks in this country, it's out of sight, out of mind, having no idea, having no clue whatsoever. Uh, and uh, this sort of billboard campaign shows the impacts of racism. Like, like I said, it impacts that child before it's even born. Absolutely. I mean, the statistics that are surrounding that data is just, you know, atrocious. When you look at uh, black maternal mortality, when you look at black infant mortality, uh, when you look at all of these various ways in which our children have to fight for their lives and black women have to fight to be able to live by going through the very natural process of being pregnant and giving birth. It is atrocious. We really are, when you look specifically at the statistics that are connected with the black community, more akin to institutions or nations that are not developed nations, right? Developing nations, uh, as opposed to other sort of major uh, other uh, nations across the world that are already developed nations. And so it's really disturbing to see these statistics. And what really annoys me when we hear about the pushback to just the truth telling uh, that initiatives like this provide in terms of putting those statistics and those truths on billboard is that you have people that are more offended by the telling of truth than they are offended by the horrible circumstances that lead to the disparities that literally kill women and children each and every day who are black. And it has to be upfront in your face uh, because a lot of people simply have no idea, Teresa. Uh, and people have been have lived in denial about this reality. Uh, and we talked about it when, when Serena Williams talked about it. Folks were just like, oh, my gosh, shocked, because it shows you uh, that it doesn't matter how much money you have. Uh, you have those issues when it comes to doctors and racism. Absolutely. And you know what? If, if, even if we just went on to the, the basic conversation on what a billboard is meant to do, it is meant to be in your face, thought-provoking, a call of action. It is meant for you to do something. So if this divisive billboard was meant for you to have conversation about um, what, or make you actually go to the website because people wanted to learn more, these are the stats and these are the hard-hitting truths that people are taking action to do. So I totally agree with it. I think the stats back it up. And it's an unfortunate truth that if, if you want to change this narrative, the simple thing is change it. Exactly. Well, uh, Julianne, go ahead. Well, I was just saying exactly. If you want to change the narrative, change the narrative. Beyonce Knowles also had the same problem uh, with her uh, childbirth, and she talked about it. But people don't want, you know, people do not want to believe the truth. They want, they don't believe that fat meat is greasy. In other words, they would, want, would love to believe in this race-neutral world where there is no discrimination, but every stat we have, starting with income data, poverty data, you go down the list, every stat we have shows disparity. I think last week, Roland, we talked about uh, what happens in medicine and how, you know, black men going to an emergency room with a broken bone are less likely, about 40% less likely to get pain medication than a white man with the same kind of injury. So we know that the, we know what time it is, and it's useful for women who are pregnant to get that information 
uh, just so that they could be more vigilant about what goes on in their lives. Many have heard about what happened with Serena, uh, what happened with Beyonce, but many have not. And when they find themselves in a situation with eclampsia or something else, they and their partners need to be empowered to say something to these doctors. Absolutely. Folks, got to go to a break. Uh, when we come back, crazy as white people. Also, Jim Jones talks about how to lose those last 10 pounds before the summer. And my, I'll chat with Tamika Mallory about her new book, State of Emergency. All of that next. Roland Martin Unfiltered. Back in a moment. The lonely, the alienated, the sad, and the angry. In every country torn by strife, violence, and hardship, men and women are drawn to extremist leaders, promising to take on the enemies of their people. In America, some of our lost souls respond in a similar way to the call of influential voices. But instead of militant preachers or radical clerics, every single night in America, they can listen to our own angry advocates of division and conspiracy. Confused, angry people hear the call of these voices and take on the camouflage of warriors to threaten and even kill civilians. The radicalized Republican Party and the twisted people on TV who speak for them use the very same language of intolerance and rage to provoke those alienated people, actively pouring kerosene on the fire of social unrest. And until we all reject these poisonous voices, the result will inevitably be escalating violence and tragedy. Hi, my name is Latoya Luckett. Yo, it's your man Dion Cole from Blackish, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Stay woke. going to call this one full moon karen y'all uh this crazy ass white woman she decided to get a little bit vulgar with a black cop didn't go so over well for full moon karen are you gonna be in jail i really oh my god okay no i'm just kidding i'm just kidding oh <laughs> Roll that again. <laughs> Are you gonna be in jail? I really. Oh my god. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh. Teresa, uh, look, you act the fool, some stuff gonna happen. Teaser, 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 teaser. <laughs> that woman had to either be intoxicated, she had to be intoxicated on something. I mean, who shows her total behind? I mean, all of it, down to the crack, to the police. That was, she had that to was, be yeah. intoxicated.
Yeah, Brit- I don't know. I don't know. She could have been probably in the right mindset. I mean, but she was messing with the wrong one. But even in this instance, right? I'm glad we can laugh about it now. But in some instances, some people just took out a gun. This African American woman police officer, she needs a hero heroic award for managing the situation. Oh she could have kicked her in the butt, right? But she oh. didn't. She literally tried to grip her up. Then she had to run after it. Then she realized her shoes. And so then she took up the taser, which was the next step. So congrats to this uh, African-American police officer who followed the handbook from start to finish and didn't slap the woman. Because I know some of us <laughs> were recording saying taser, taser, taser. <laughs> but uh, she did the right thing. Um... Avis, again, these people are outlandish. Hey, uh, guess what? One shot, boom, she went down. Yeah, literally, she dropped it like it was hot. Um, it was kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I thought that it was interesting, though, uh, that, you know, this is an example of what, a, a, you know, a well-trained police officer does. It's interesting that she had no problem with determining which side her taser was on versus which side her gun was on. And she was able to actually use a taser while the suspect was running away, where other people will claim that, oh, in this instance, you can't really shoot the taser. It's too far. I mean, all sorts of excuses that we hear after Black people end up dead uh, for nothing. So, you know, you know, it, it, like you said, it's amusing to see. I especially love the little slide that she did at the end after she did, did the face plant in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the road. Uh, but it, once again, it's, it's an example of how policing is supposed to be done. And if black p- police officers go through the very same training that these white police officers do, then, you know, we know that a lot of these things that happen clearly aren't happening because of lack of training. They're happening because people are predisposed to be extra violent and to the point of murderous when it comes to black people. So I have another crazy ass white person, and this is from a really crazy ass white person. Uh, you people remember him from Silver Spoon, Rick, Ricky Schroeder. Um, you know, over the weekend, he uh, verbally attacked a Costco employee. Uh, then little Ricky decided to do a video where he apologized to the Costco employee. But then he tried to comment on stuff dealing with black people. Now, y'all remember Ricky Schroeder helped pay the bail for Kyle Rittenhouse. Yep. Ricky Schroeder, who's a huge Donald Trump supporter. If you want to know what this neo-Nazi thinks, listen to what this fool had to say about America and comparing America to Rhodesia. And if anybody speaks of Rhodesia, that was when the white folks ran what is now Zimbabwe. Listen to this. Because uh, I'm still confused by what the hell Ricky was talking about. Um, let's see here. Here we go. Do you guys hear now? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, not sure. Uh, give me one second. I'm going to change my audio output. Um, th- th- this is, and I'm going to go ahead and say it. If, if y'all want to see what a white nationalist looks like, uh, that's this guy who a lot of people 
used to follow uh, in Hollywood. And, 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 and y'all, and, and when I say it got strange, it got real strange because then this fool started talking about Candace Owens and he started talking about, I mean, he, 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 he like went real, like real cray cray. Um, and so I'm not quite sure, um, uh, what, what his issues are. Uh, guys, let me know if you're, you're hearing it now. Okay. We're having some, uh, having some issues here. So let me, um. Let me sort of, I'm going to switch this here. I'm going to go to my iPad here. Uh, because, so, um, and when we talk about Rhodesia, y'all got to remember, uh, remember Dylan Roof? Remember he was wearing um, a patch of the Rhodesian government when he was busted. Um, and, and, and so these white supremacists in this country, uh, they keep invoking Rhodesia. And when you start invoking Rhodesia, hell, you might as well just invoke South Africa uh, and their racist regime as well. And, and that's what we're seeing. And, you know, and, and I keep, and I just keep, I keep telling people, you know, my, my book come out next year, White Fear. And I just keep telling people and they, they think I'm crazy. And I'm going, no, you got white people in this country who, who really, who, who, who seriously uh, are thinking that, uh, the country's going to hell in a handbasket because they cannot handle um, not being in control. Uh, and so some of the crazy talk that they have been um, uh, stating, first of all, he, 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 here's Ricky Schroeder talking about, uh, here is Ricky Schroeder, y'all. Uh, y'all gonna really love this one. He's talking about uh, how America was safer in the 80s. Okay, l listen to this. So let's go back to that. Remember the 80s? It was safer. Um, obviously, not in the, in the crack-filled streets in, in the inner cities. So that was... we got to kill all the drug dealers. Not, and I don't mean the guys selling on the streets. I mean the big drug dealers. It is ravaging our country from the inside. And, uh, and, and the black community has been abused by it uh, for it being allowed in, in, into anywhere in this, in this country. And uh, it's our responsibility, it's your responsibility as leaders to stop that from coming, that poison from coming into our streets. And you're not doing it, you're failing. And you're failing the people. Um, so black community, we hear you. We hear, we, we know your despair. And we want to work together as Americans, all of us, to find a way out of this together. Um, anyway, I think my battery's dying. Everybody take care of each other. Until next time. Um, actually, I, I, I would dare say, Ricky, I would say your, your brain is dying. Um, and so uh, uh, listen, listen to this one. The concepts of socialism and... Um, Having, having, uh, they bind people. They don't let them lift, grow up. They don't let them lift up. They don't let them upward mo mobility. They, they keep people down. And so, please don't be used. Don't be used by a Marxist movement trying to start a revolution um, because it won't bring uh, better. It will bring more despair. The, the, the concepts of socialism and... Now, it, um, it, yeah, now, the, the hits keep on coming. The hits keep on coming. Um, uh, Julian, you're gonna really love this one. Check this fool out. 
one talk to the black community, I guess, at the end. Um, it's, it's in poverty and it's in despair. Um, we hear you. And what I'd like to say is that you have other black leaders that follow the Booker T. Washington thoughts. Candace Owens, Thomas Sowell, David Harris, um, Officer Tatum. That other officer is so great. He's actually a cop in uniform. Um, anyway, so you have great leaders that see it differently. Can you at least possibly consider not following the leaders that have led you to Five the seconds. situation you're in today? This. So he would like for black people to follow Candace Owens and David Harris. Hmm. Okay. Here's that one I about. He was talking about Rhodesia. Uh, this is why you should not take any advice from a white supremacist. Final one. Country that was once a thriving breadbasket of uh, Southern Africa, um, and then destroyed and became a place where where white whites live in fear. Um, the fourth, fifth generation white farmers that have been there since the 1700s, um, you know, run out or killed. Um, and the country fell, and Mugabe took over and came to Zimbabwe. They used racial tension to create that disaster. Um, I feel like that's what's happening here. I feel like they're stoking racial tension to try to create the same events here. And it's uh, sinister, and it's evil. If you look at Rhodesia, a country that was once a thriving breadbasket of uh, Southern Africa. Okay, Julian, here's why that's so laughable. He laments the racial strife in Zimbabwe, uh, but he just completely ignores the apartheid where the white folks um, control the country and rule the nation with an iron fist, but then blames racial strife on Mugabe uh, in Zimbabwe. First of all, Mugabe is dead. Um, um, there are many people who have been highly critical of Mugabe's reign uh, in Zimbabwe in that he behaved like uh, the white folks did before him, uh, oppressing his own people. But I don't recall things being so peachy and lovely for black people under white rule in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. No, in fact, um, the reason why land was taken from those white farmers is because there were black folks on that land at the beginning, and they took it from them, passed a bunch of laws that made it impossible for people to own. And so if he wants to... Th but this guy probably clearly doesn't read anything and doesn't know anything. And, I mean, I wouldn't follow Candace Owens to the corner. Um, just wouldn't do it. Um, and so th th this is absurd. It just shows a total lack of historical knowledge but it's also, he's a provocateur. You know, that's what he is. He's, he's talking smack, and he thinks that people are going to pay attention to him. And black, most black people will not. Now, Candace Owens, of course, probably has a, you know, grin for half a day when she heard that. Oh, gee, somebody thinks I'm a leader. No, she's not. She just, you know, Thomasina. That's all we can say is Thomasina. And it's not because we disagree with her. It's because it's the way that she does Mr. Bowdangles jangles for the white folks and the opportunity that she gets. So this guy, I mean, everything you played, Roland, you know, we could just we could just spend like another ten minutes cracking up, because that literally all of his nonsense is utterly laughable. And the other thing he's forgotten is that 
black people are 13% of the population here. We were 90% of the population in Zimbabwe. You have the minority taking from the majority through apartheid and through uh, basically cricket laws. Now, the likelihood of us taking from the majority is very, very low. We are the minority, and we know it. And we've been oppressed as a minority. The thing that I found to be really hilarious there, uh, Avis, he said, oh, these white farmers, they've been there since the 1700s. <laughs> no. How long have black people been there? <laughs> Rhodesia was created in 1965. <laughs> I mean, just give me a second to be petty. Can I have a second? Sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's Ricky Schroeder. He was a child star. He has aged like white milk. My God. If you didn't tell me who that was, I would have had no clue. I would have had no clue. Jesus Christ, how old is he? Jesus. Okay, that's my petty. I just had to get my petty out of the way before I said something substantial. But but I, I will say that, you know, obviously, as Dr. Malvo pointed out, him and actual facts, you know, don't know each other. And I almost... I threw up a little bit in my mouth when he mentioned Booker T. Washington and Candace Owens in the same sentence. It is absolutely disgusting. Uh, you know, I, what can I say? He, he looked like aged white milk, and he makes no sense. That's that's my reaction. The, the, the thing that I find is it, so hilarious about uh, about these white supremacists like, uh, like Ricky Schroeder, uh, Teresa, is I love it how he thinks he can talk to black people and say... You know, y'all haven't been doing your job when it comes to drugs in these communities. And then you need to be following other black leaders like David Harris and Thomas Sowell and, and, and Candace Owens and Brandon Tatum. Um, no, we reject those idiots. Because when they align with themselves as white supremacists, yeah, we're good. We'll, we'll pass. Please, please move along. It was interesting that he, he started one of the clips out saying that uh, um, he wants to, you know, get rid of the top drug dealers, but not the ones that are on the corners. So essentially, <laughs> so essentially, you know, just just the ones, I guess, the, the you know, the, the, the what do you call it? The boss, the, the whoever runs the, the cartel leaders. But, but but he also acts as if the drug issue in America is with black people. More mm -hmm. the, the problem with drugs in America ain't black people, it's white people. Bringing it to black neighborhoods and No, but it's white people using. Oh, oh yeah. The, the, the rising use of drugs has been white people. But even more than that, if you want to talk about drug use, let's talk about pharma. Let's talk about American pharmacies and the, the manufacture of opioids. And then basically pushing them through communities, mostly white communities, praise the Lord. Um, not that I wish anybody addiction, but if someone's going to be addicted, I hope it's not black people. Uh, but in any case, just no structural knowledge of markets. And to, and to lift up Thomas Sowell, Mr. Anti-Affirmative Action, um, who mercifully has faded away, but to mention Sowell in terms of leadership is really laughable. But, but the thing here, again, I think, and what we have to understand, and this really is important, um, um, uh, uh, Teresa, is that uh, you have these folks, you have the likes of Brandon Tatum and Candace Owens and others who are being elevated by these white supremacists, by these neo-Nazis, by these folks. Uh, and I'm sitting there going, they don't like you fools either. 
all you need when when you you know you're absolutely right. But anytime you know a Candace Owens or Brandon Tatum um, has at least five black friends, that's just enough for the the white population to uh, white conservative based population to highlight their stance into their world. When they found someone that is willing to conform with some of their morals. Um, and some of their beliefs and is able to rationalize the smallest of uh, interim into black culture, of which um, they obviously has lost their way because um, there there is some some critical issues. But again, when we take education and history out of black public school systems, this is what we get. Um, yeah, and we're, you're dealing with a truly uneducated Ricky Schroeder. All right, folks, got to go to break. We come back. Jim Jones returns. We're going to talk about uh, losing those final 10 pounds before uh, the summer starts. And we'll chat with Tamika Mallory about her new book, State of Emergency, Climbing the Bestsellers List. That next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Shortly after 9-11... America and its allies went to war in Afghanistan to defeat a terrorist stronghold. We accomplished that mission years ago. Trillions of dollars lost, over 2,000 Americans dead, countless Afghans dead. It's time to get out. Many presidents have tried to end the war in Afghanistan, but President Biden is actually going to do it. And by 9-11, over 20 years after the war was started, the last American soldier will depart, and America's longest war will be over. Promise made, promise kept. Before Till's murder, we saw struggle for civil rights as something grown-ups did. I feel that the generations before us have offered a, a lot of instruction. Organizing is really one of the only things that gives me the sanity and makes me feel purposeful. When Emmett Till was murdered, yeah. that's what attracted our attention. Hi, I'm Kim Burrell. Hi, I'm Carl Painting. Hey, everybody, this is Sherry Shepard. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Folks, uh, summer fastly approaching. Folks ready to hit the beach. We're lit you're seeing the COVID bans lifted. Uh, and a lot of people are still carrying around that COVID 10, 15, 20, some say 30. Uh, we talked about Will Smith, of course, in his uh, challenge that he's undergoing this YouTube series. Uh, Jim Jones joins us right now. Uh, Jim, all right, so focusing, all right, I, I want to do something. I want to lose this weight. Where in the hell did I start? Uh, because uh, well, a lot of people are still at home, working from home, not going into work, don't have the same activity, aren't as busy as they were before. And so um, what do you recommend? Because stuff is opening up. I'm telling you what, Roland, I'm here today. I'm here only giving out the secrets on how to drop that final 10. A lot of people have been working that at home, and they kind of hit a wall, right? They hit a wall. They just can't drop that last 5 to 10 pounds for the summertime. So I'm going to tell you, it's in the diet. The one thing I tell people is if you cut out the carbs and the starches out of your diet, that's where those 10 pounds are. It's in the foods. Cut out the rices, the pastas, and the bread. So people say, hey, Jim, what does that look like? 
So what you got to do is eat a meat and a veggie, right? Just go ahead and clean it up, do a green shake in the morning, but just clean up out all the carbs and the starches because you know what, Roland? They digest as sugar. No matter how you cut it, rice, bread, pasta, you might as well be eating Snickers and Kit Kats because it digests the same way. So, okay, so so you lay out in terms of uh, terms terms of the diet piece, mm -hmm. um, but uh, those folks who say, all right, Jim, that's easier said than done. Uh, I love rice, so should I just, if you do rice, should I not do white rice? Should I do brown rice? Let's do no rice. Let's go no rice for about, I tell people, start with seven days, no carbs and starches, and just build from there, and just watch how your body changes. If you cut the if you cut the pasta and the starches and cut the rest times in between when you're at the gym, put a timer on. Go 15 seconds each set. Get that intensity and the, add the intensity to your workout. You'll you'll guarantee to burn more fat. So rest time and diet are the two secrets to cutting those last 10 pounds. But what about okay? So you say cut 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 uh, the, those uh, the, those starches out. Mm -hmm. but, but but why is it that I see in, in a lot of the food plans they have sweet potatoes? There is, there is, there is. There are some good starches, but you know what? If we're that's fine for a normal for their for your standard fit diet. But if you're really trying to cut down and get those last ten out, we gotta go extreme, right? I think people think if you see a meal plan, they say, "Hey, I'm sticking to my meal plan. I, I hit a plateau." It's because we gotta go hard. We gotta take that extra step. We gotta go ahead and lean the plan all the way out. So that's why I roll in. I'm pulling out all the starches, all the breads to get you that last to get you just get you where you want to be for the summertime. Uh, let's see here. I know we got some questions. Uh, Julian, Julian, you got your first question for, for Jim Jones? Jim, is, uh, you said cut out the starches. Well, is couscous considered a starch? I mean, it's an alternative grain. So I'm wondering if it, um, and it's supposed to be healthy. So yes, tell it me. is. It is, it is. So couscous and quinoa, if you're going to put a little side on there, I'm, I'm okay with those too. But it's the rices, the potatoes, and the breads and the pasta that have to go. But couscous and quinoa, those are good, and that's actually a great question. Those are fine. All right, Avis. So after the last ten pounds, you know, hopefully you're luckily luck you're able to go ahead and get those last ten pounds off five. Follow your strategy of eliminating the carbs. Absolutely love that. Can do that. But sure. afterwards, does this mean that you're kind of uh, always uh, have to sort of avoid the carbs, or is that something you just know that you just have to cut back on in order to maintain that? extra 10 pound weight loss good question good question so i tell you what i tell people after you go 7 to 21 to 30 days you kind of don't even miss it so when you do add carbs back into your diet it's a very small amount because you you've actually broken that addiction to eating the pastas and the starches so i tell people go 7 10 21 30 days you don't even know but you're conditioning your mind to cut back so there's going to be a drastic cutback naturally after you're finished with this, this this new fast i'm creating does that uh that answer the question it does. Thank you. Yep. Because you want to work this into your lifestyle. The thing is, it's got to work into your lifestyle. And the way we do that is by building habits, consistency. Seven days, 14 days, 21 days, 30 days. You go back, you don't even miss it. Mm-hmm. Teresa. Right. Hey, Jim. So I do a lot of workouts. So my question has to do with... Uh, shakes and uh smoothies what do you recommend what should we put in what should i take out well i, I tell you what the, the, the most common mistake i see with all smoothies is too much fruit right people thinking you throwing your berries your strawberries your mangoes that's all sugar what you want to try to do is keep the fruit 
and your vegetables to portion even, even it out. That's what you want to do at best. I, that's the most common mistake I see. People throwing agave, honey, because they think they're natural sweeteners, but those sweeteners, are it's just like sugar, right? So I think that's, that's the main thing is keep that fruit and veggie balance. I know myself personally, I like kale, carrots, cucumbers, spinach, you know, throw that in there to even out the fruit. But I'm, I'm willing to bet most people are putting too much fruit in their smoothies. Like me. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, listen, common mistake. We everyone does, but it's just sugars are sneaky. They will try to sneak their way into your diet any way they can. So you just, you just gotta watch them. Thank you. All right, Jim. Any other advice for the folks uh, watching and listening? What I would say, listen, do that. I, I have uh, a herbal weight loss tea. I tell people to take. You know, they can find that at my Instagram, G Y M J O N E Z G Y M Jim, like the gym muscle, J O N E Z. <laughs> Follow me there, and everything is uh, everything is there you need. All right. Jim Jones with Trill. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Rowan. Always a pleasure. All right, folks. We come back. State of Emergency. That's the title of Tamika Mallory's new book. It is climbing the bestsellers list. She will join us to discuss it next in Roland's Book Club, right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. So the King Movement of 1955 is the first time in a very violent civilization, Western civilization, any sizable group of people started to work to change by insisting we can use nonviolence power to create the change. Gandhi said that nonviolent power, the power of life, is the greatest and most creative force power of the universe, and that if we human beings turn away from conventional wisdom towards using the gift of life, which is ours at birth, we would be surprised what the future of the human race will look like. Hi, my name is Latoya Luckett. Yo, it's your man Dion Cole from Blackish, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Stay woke. Folks, many of you know her as, of course, one of the uh, co-organizers of the Women's March. She also was the co-founder of Until Freedom, has been on the front lines fighting for social justice for, frankly, all her life. Spent years working for the National Action Network. Uh, she now is the author of the book, State of Emergency, How We Win in the Country We Built, forwards by Angela Davis and Cardi B, Tamika Mallory. Glad to have you on the show. Good to see you in Baytown last week. Ruler Martin. But what I want to know, I just have one question, is why am I not in the promo at the beginning of your show? I just want to know why. Why are you not in the promo? Which promo? There, there was a promo that just ran with Latoya Luckett and all these... Oh, no, 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 no. Those are, those, those are, those are celebrity drops, which means I don't think oh. you've done a drop for the show. I'm also not a celebrity like they are, so... No, but yeah, but we can include you, but you haven't done a drop. Okay, well, I will. See, there you go. There you go right there. See, there you go right there. I was like, promo? Like, what you talking about, promo? All right, let's, do, let's, get, let's get right to it, talking about state of emergency. Uh, you, I remember when you were writing this, you were like, okay, this is hard as hell. You like, this is driving me crazy. Why? Why was it so hard? 
Well, first of all, it was an aggressive timeline. You know, I started the book a few months after my speech in Minneapolis, which is just one year ago um, during this month. And obviously, since the book is finished and in my hand, uh, all the printing and the and the editing and the proofreading, that takes time as well. So that means that the timeline that I had was really, really short. And I, you know, remember writing you and saying, yo, this is really hard. Like, it's not easy to also um, sort of narrow down the information that you want to include. And every time I thought I, my, my thoughts were clear, I would have to go back. And then so many times I felt like there needs to be more. And it was actually Dr. Davis, Dr. Angela Davis, who I called one day and I said, you know, I'm just, I feel like it's not enough. I'm, I'm, I'm really suffering with anxiety around the book. And she said all first-time authors and even authors who've written multiple books have the same feeling, but you just have to put down your thoughts and put it in the world and let the world deal with it. And, and that just sort of freed me from uh, the feeling that I was having. It was just, it was a lot. It was very intense. Um, and well, I mean, obviously, the work that you're involved in is intense as well. Before we delve into it, I got to ask you this here. Um, and it is something that all activists have to deal with. And, and it's one of the hardest things uh, when you're not getting sleep, when your diet is all over the place, when you're battling illness, when people are pulling you uh, left and right, getting phone calls from people all around the country to come here and come here. Uh, and then you have folks who are constantly attacking and sniping and questioning your integrity, your credibility, and your character. Um, how do you deal with that? Because it's a lot. I mean, there are moments when, uh, when, and I've talked to other folks, uh, you know, folks get down and they sit and go like, damn, I'm sitting here putting all this work in and having to deal with BS for people who look like me. You know, um, Roland, I have developed thick skin because, thankfully, I've been around uh, great leaders my entire life, and I watch them be attacked and to be castigated and, and, and to have their character defamed in the same ways. Um, and I think that the only thing we can do—in fact, I saw a tweet from Mark Lamont Hill the other day that basically said, keep doing the work. History will vindicate you. And for me, that's that's what I'm leaning on. And I think the other piece, you know, because I call you and I call others and say, you know, uh, you know, different things that I'm feeling. And we, we talk through uh, what is the right way to approach addressing some of it. And most of it we are not addressing at all because those individuals, for the most part, that spend so much time focusing on trying to uh, critique and tear me down are people that I never see outside. I don't see them. I didn't see them in Baytown. Um, uh, Texas for Pamela Turner. I never saw them in Louisville, Kentucky for Breonna Taylor. I've not seen them in New York for Eric Garner, Sean Bell, or many of the fights that I've been involved in. Um, and I travel across the country supporting many families who asked me to be, to be there. I've not seen them supporting Trayvon Martin, who I was just with his mother in uh, Florida just this past weekend, um, where she held a conference for the Circle of Mothers. Sandra Bland's mother was there. Um, uh, so many mothers. Uh, the names go on. It's too many names. Uh, Cle Cleola uh, was there for her daughter, Hadiah, Hadiah 
Pendleton, who's a 16-year-old who was killed on a park um, uh, in a park in Chicago, and President Obama honored her. Cheyenne Norman, this is a woman who I helped her to bury her four-year-old child. I've been with these families for 25 years of my life, and in every single uh, situation, I've never, I don't even think I've ever met any of these people. And so I have to keep focused. But I think the thing that, um, you know, I've been taught by so many of the great leaders who have been in, through these things before me is to focus on those people who are with you. And not to say that I don't listen to critique, because there have been times when you've called me to say, hey, I don't think the way in which you all are approaching certain things is the right way to go. Let's look at the strategy. But the way that it's done is in love. The way that it's done is not an attempt to gossip about me, to tear me down, um, or to, you know, try to vilify me. It's done in a way that lets me feel safe. And I think we all should protect our energy and feel safe, you know? So I focus my attention on people who want to critique from a position that allows me to grow rather than people who are looking for attention and likes on their social media and are using um, the defamation of another black person and particularly a black woman, a woman in order to get that. One of the things that you write about, you write about called the sacrifice of the activists. And 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 that is something that again, uh, I don't believe people really understand. Just the other day, uh, Latasha Brown uh, posted a video of her in the hospital dealing with exhaustion, uh, and I sent her a text and I said, "Did you and I had this conversation five months ago?" Uh, because I was imploring her uh, to get rest and knowing when to take breaks and how often to take breaks, uh, and I said. Look, you're you're no good on the battlefield if you're not on the battlefield, if you're laid up. But many people don't understand how often Reverend Jackson has checked himself in the hospitals uh, for for IV fluids dealing with exhaustion. Dr. King, same thing. On many occasions, would get checked in the hospitals because he was battling exhaustion. Uh, and and again, that's I don't think the average person really understands what activists go through every single day. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I have been very open recently um, in talking about how I got addicted to Xanax and other uh, uh, pain pills, attempting to just get some sleep. Because when laying down at night and not sleeping, and it's now 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m., um, you know, it, it was certainly a challenge and something that um, began to make me depressed. It started to make me um, have really, really negative thoughts. I wasn't necessarily suicidal, but certainly my addiction was a form of suicide. And, um, it, it, and I had to actually go through one uh, drug treatment, but not only did I go to rehab, while I was there, they began to identify that PTSD was a part of what the, the underlying cause of how I ended up in that situation. And so, you know, I feel like um, your point is so, so true that people don't really understand the toll that it takes on you, the days when you can't pay your bills, uh, the times when your children need you and you're not able to be there, or just the guilt of not being there to support your family, but yet you're out there working on behalf of other families. It becomes, it's a lot. And then, of course, we do have to deal with um, the critiques of our community, and we do have to show up and continue to prove that we are ten toes 
down. You have to, you know, it's, there's so many things. I mean, I, I think about just in my own life, I have at least five different things going on that allows me to, um, you know, keep income and to make sure that I can live the way that I want to live and not have to change my message or change who I am in order to be able to put food on the table. And so it is a very stressful thing, but I will say that I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in my life. And I do talk about in state of emergency, my commitment to this fight and the fact that I am prepared to give my life. I don't want to foolishly do it. Um, and we want to make sure that Latasha Brown gets the type of rest that she deserves because she and I were out there on the road meeting each other. This is another person who's actually outside. I met her on the road several times over the last year, um, working, working in the trenches. And, uh, and I know the exhaustion that she has. And so I don't want to kill myself from not sleeping and not resting and not taking care of myself, but I certainly am, am committed enough um, that I would be willing to give my life in the drop of a dime if it meant that my people would be free. Our people. One of the things that uh, I think also is, is critically important, uh, and uh, to my panel, I'm going to pull y'all in with some questions in a moment, um, that, that people really also, it's hard for people to understand, is that when you are an activist, there are going to be times when you have to make decisions that other people don't quite understand. I think back to 1964, Atlantic City. Yeah, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. They traveled to Atlantic City and they were committed in seating a black uh, delegation. And President Lyndon Baines Johnson sent Walter, Walter Ruther, uh, head of the labor union, to King, said, look, I need this to end. You tell King, Take the compromise on pulling all of your money. And he accepted the compromise. And there were people who, who attacked him. And he said, uh, I am not going, he said, to lose sight of progress by trying to get everything I absolutely want. He said, we have to build towards it. And there are, there are a lot of people out there, and I, rem I remember very vividly, there are people who were attacking you, attacking Ben Crump, when they had the settlement for Breonna Taylor in Louisville. And you spoke on that day. I remember when they had the settlement for the George Floyd family during the trial, and folks, uh, you know, attacked them for it. Uh, there are people who, who have said, you know, uh, you know uh, politically, uh, whether it's with President Obama, President Biden, and others, and people say, you know, how dare you do that? Not understanding that unless you're in the room and you realize what is truly going on and how far things have gotten and how you have to achieve some progress, it's very easy to stay on the outside and say, no, you don't, don't you get everything we want or get nothing at all. That's real easy when it was one of your family members who wasn't, when you didn't have a family member who was killed. Yeah, I, I think that there is a balance, right? We are, when we're looking just at what's happening um, in, in Washington right now around the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And now we hear folks, especially leading Democrats, um, talking about uh, folding, if you will, or compromising on qualified immunity, something that we see to be at the heart of the bill. Um, that is a moment when we can say, don't compromise, go back in and try, at least try. I think one for us, um, our position in that area is let us see 
who the real obstacles are to getting progress and to getting what it is that we want. Don't step in the way and become the target of conversation. So that is very, very different. But when you're looking at people, and we're not talking about folks in elected office, we're talking about families, we're talking about attorneys, we're talking about people like in Breonna Taylor's situation who said, well, we will take a settlement, but we also will make sure that there are actual reforms in that settlement and and I know for sure that they've been meeting with the city and with the mayor to make sure that these, these other changes within the police department become real. And it's, it's going to take work. It's not going to happen overnight. But they didn't just take the money and not focus on making sure that they help at least in the best way possible to protect the next Breonna Taylor um, from, you know, becoming fallen victim to what we see happening to her. And there were plenty of people who said, and it tells you that they were misinformed, that they would say, well, you can't get a, a, a settlement and take settlement money and still get a guilty verdict, that once you take the money before the trial is over, you're never going to get a, a, a guilty verdict or get any accountability. Well, we know that that's not true, because we see that in the, in the case of George Floyd, it was $27 million that they received as a settlement, but they still got guilty on all charges in the trial. It's two separate things, and I think all of this speaks to the fact that, in some ways, um, we don't always know. I know that there have been times that I've jumped out and been strong and wrong, um, and I was strong because I had the right to be passionate, but I was wrong because I didn't understand all of the details of what I was talking about. Uh, I'm going to pull in my panelists for some questions, and I'm going to ask you a few more questions. Let me start with Teresa Lundy. Yeah, thanks, Roland. Um, Tamika, uh, it is a pleasure to, uh, one, congratulations on your book. Um, the last time I saw you in person, you were right here in the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. And uh, that was at, I think it was like two years ago for a Meek Mill rally. Um, and you spoke on stage and thousands of um, Philadelphians wanted to hear you and they wanted to hear about the call. So congratulations on the book. Um, and it was an honor to do that. So my question to you is, um, I think, you know, as I again, I bought the book a few days ago, so I can't wait to read it this weekend. Um, I didn't read it, so I kind of feel bad asking a question about it. But um, so tell me about a, a little bit, um, I, I think for me and, you know, kind of doing some of this, this commentary stuff and, um, kind of putting yourself out there and having to always explain yourself, you know, um, outwardly to people, I think is, it's always a little bit troublesome, um, because I, I don't think people really understand, you know, the impact of the activists, right? So, um, I think. And I'm hoping it says a, a part of it in your book about the, the, the activism in different ways, because for my, me personally, I do it in public relations and communications. Um, and so I think my question for you is when you um, started out in activism, you know, doing it um, years on end, um, what was that like in terms of, you know, um, seeing the, the, the stories of the families and then also understanding that you have, you know, your own family at home to take care of. So how did you, yeah. you know, create the balance and also, you know, stay sane at the same time? Yeah, so there, there, there really isn't a balance um, that I personally have perfected. 
Um, I'm still a work in progress. Um, I think, you know, a, a piece of it is I'm traveling right now. I had my son, who's 22 years old, to fly in for a few days to be with me, um, you know, and I'm, you know, and I try in those ways of just trying to include him in my work and give him different responsibilities and ways that he and I can connect. Um, you know, I obviously FaceTime is the best thing that they ever created because I can talk to my mom. I can be, you know, still connected to my dad and my sister and my family members. And so in a lot of ways, technology has helped. But the balance is not it's not exactly as it should be. Um, and how can it be? I could be in the process today of preparing to go to a graduation, a birthday party, or just to get some rest, to kick my feet up. And something happens that requires immediate attention. And we have to just go. We have to shift. We have to shift resources. We don't, we, you know, don't always have the money, but we find it. We find it along our way because we have so many supporters who stand with us. And you mentioned, you know, this idea of explaining ourselves over and over again. I have to be very, very clear. I have uh, thrown away the idea of trying to explain to certain people every day, because if I did that, I would never get a chance to do my work. because. They come up with something all the time. They make little short clips of things that you say so that they can use it as a aha gotcha moment. You know, they do, they they work really hard at trying to discredit um, other people who are out there doing work. So that's an actual job, and it's not my job. So I can't focus on responding to it. But if you do see me or hear me um, making a statement, it is because I want to talk to those people who are with me, those people who want to be connected. And and they just want to understand what's happening and what's your position on these issues so that they can, one, become warriors to go out there and speak on my behalf to help us to continue the movement and also to spread truthful information rather than allowing some people to try to drown out our work with false narratives. Avis, your question, Tamika Mallory. Hi there, Tamika. It's wonderful to see you. And once again, congratulations on your book. Well-deserved for all the accolades that you're getting and will get as it continues to be rolled out. Uh, I have a question for you because, you know, I know that you have been, you're not new to this, you're true to this, as they would say, right? This is not something that is just a fly-by-night interest of yours. You've been doing this work literally all of your life. And when I think about all that you've done uh, and all the different ways that you have fought for our community, you know, it, it is really unparalleled by a, a lot of folks. Let's just be real. Uh, however, I believe that as a Black woman, you, the, the strength of your leadership is not properly acknowledged. I believe that if it was a man who has the very same resume that you have, um, you would be given an, an even greater sort of platform and stature and just acknowledgement for the full-fledged excellent leader that you are. So, so my question to you is, you know, what do you see as um, a way that you can, as a Black woman, um, I know that you're going to do the work regardless, but is there any way that you think that we as a society can do a better job of really acknowledging the power of Black leadership when it comes in the frame of a powerful Black woman? You know, when I think about, thank you so much. Um, you know how much I love and appreciate you as a dear sister. Um, you know, when I think about 
Roland just in general and on this show um, and all the people who Roland has helped to get to where they are. And we know that. I mean, I've watched folks grow from, uh, you know, sitting with Roland and learning. They weren't necessarily commentators at the time that he started with all of us. I mean, even me, you know, there's, there's a growth process and Roland has been a part of that. And I think that's one of the ways that people who are in positions of power or people who have platforms need to use them to uplift the voices of young women um, and of young people in general who are out here who really do deserve the type of awareness to be raised around their voices and their leadership. And so I would say that's one. But I think the movement is shifting. I think this moment that we're in, we're beginning to see more women rising to the occasion. And it's really nothing that can be done about it, because at the end of the day, if we don't respect those women who are out here leading these protests, these women who are organizing on behalf of women and men, if we don't respect the voices of trans, Black trans folks um, who are also organizing in a movement to protect those people who are being killed um, unjustly, uh, and, 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 and we know that there are some folks in our community that don't understand it, and so we are all in an education process. We're learning together, and we're learning about the power of Black women, um, and I think I'm glad to be a part of the generation that will make sure that the voices of Black women do not go unnoticed. And I think that's happening, whether people like it or not, so they might as well just join. What do they say? <laughs> if you can't beat us, just join us. Julian, your question. Hey, Tamika, how you doing? It's good to see you. Um, we go back a little ways, and I want to go back a little ways in asking my question. I know that you say you don't want to revisit the past and re explain yourself, but I'm thinking about the Women's March and the challenges of intersectionality, about the ways that we, as various women, work together. Uh, I think that women of color often do a lot better than we were working with uh, the melanin deficient, um, if you know what I mean. So I'm just, what did you take away from the Women's March, and what would you say to others who um, are trying to juggle intersectional issues? So first of all, thank you, Dr. Malvo, for standing with us during that time. You were a true warrior, and um, you helped us to articulate uh, what we were feeling by writing such detailed and informative pieces that really describes the, the experience of black and brown people when they are in spaces with uh, white women. Um, and this, I'm just going to call it, I'm not going to call it melanin uh, deficient. I'm going to just say white women, because that's who we were working with. And um, in my book, there is a particular portion that focuses on the experience that I had at the Women's March. The story has not been fully told. The book only covers it um, just a, a little bit. I'm in the process of, of just starting my memoir, where I'm really going to talk more about um, that experience. And I think what I learned and what I took away is that... And Black women tried to warn me prior to getting involved in the Women's March. I'm still very proud of the work that we did. And if I had to make the choice again, I would go back and do it because I know how powerful that moment was. And I know that we had a responsibility to stand in the gap of people
people trying to whitewash the issues around racism, sexism, fascism, and so on um, in this country. And we certainly were not going to allow a march to happen where the focus was Donald Trump, as if he was the beginning and end of the, the many years of challenges and oppression, uh, particularly that people of color have, have faced. And so I'm, I'm proud of that work. But I did learn a very, very uh, painful lesson about when black folks and black women specifically are in close proximity to white women on a consistent basis, how much harm can be done. Um, you know, we went through a lot physically, e mentally, emotionally, um, after being in that space. It's very, very draining and taxing because white women have a lot of work to do. And I see the work happening. I made sure that in this book that white women, when they pick it up, that they will have an opportunity to experience our pain and to join us, to really become deep accomplices in helping us to, to navigate through uh, this fight towards racial equity and justice. Uh, but there is so much work to be done with mothers and aunties and sisters within the, the white woman community. They have a lot of work to do to deal with the biases and the blind spots that they have that cause them to harm other individuals who they claim to be helping. And, um, and you know, and, and it's, a, it's a tough lesson to learn on your back, because certainly that's how we learned it. Jamaica, uh, we talked earlier about what happens when, when you have to deal with criticism. Uh, you had to go through uh, all of this when Samaria Rice was criticizing you and others, even though you never even went to Cleveland, you were never involved in uh, the Tamir Rice uh, uh, case there. Uh, but there were folks like Breonna Taylor's mother, uh, people were de demanding that you uh, address the issue, but there were people like Breonna Taylor's mother who came forward and said, no, hold up, wait a minute, we made clear we want Tamika involved. Um, and, and talk about, you know, again, having to go through that uh, and, 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 and having to deal with those attacks when you had nothing to even do with the Tamir Rice case. So, you know, I, I recognize the trauma, Roland, and mm -hmm. I also understand that white supremacy is causing us to be at one another versus using all the smoke, as they say, to fight the systems that are in place to oppress our people and our communities. And so I get, I get, I understand that there is trauma. Anytime you lose a, a child and, and feel like people are sort of moving forward in life and your situation has not been addressed, you have not received justice, I can get why there would be pain, why there would be trauma. And I also understand that oftentimes we lash out at people who we see in visible positions um, and feel like they ought to do more. And to be quite honest, I've said it and I will continue to say that all of us, every single one of us fails um, Miss Rice and her family because Anytime a child is killed, we ought to turn this country inside out and upside down until justice is served. And 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 I don't believe uh, that she feels that we did that in the ways in which we should have or could have. I was younger in the movement at that time, and as you said, I've never actually traveled to Cleveland. I've never been one to to talk about uh, the the Tamir Rice case, other than you know there there may have been moments in my you know where you're sort of calling the roles. 
schools, but that's not something that I have ever done. And so I, um, I understand the frustration, but I also just ask people because I did get the calls. And of course it hurts when you hear someone who doesn't know you, who's never met you speaking of you in such a way. And so I did, um, you know, to get the calls from individuals who were like, well, what's happening? You know, people had some impression that I must have done something or been working with her. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. And when I explained that I had not actually been in any relationship to that case and, and that situation, um, you know, it, it provided a little bit of clarity about the trauma. But I, I encouraged everyone to speak to the families that I've actually worked with, speak to the people that for 25 years of my life I've been in the trenches with. And I, I can tell you 10 toes down that those families um, do not share the same sentiments that I am exploiting other people's um, families. In fact, I was invited to be with the families last weekend because of the fact that, you know, I, I try to work and help and support so many of them. We just helped Ahmaud Arbery's family to launch their foundation. We're working with other families to put their foundations together and to help them build more sustainable models for their foundation. Obviously, you mentioned Breonna Taylor's mother coming out and speaking up for me, you know, and she and I didn't even ask her to. I just looked up one day and she wrote something about it. I tried my best not to engage the mothers and not to ask any of them to get involved with something so painful. Um, I didn't want that to happen. But Sabrina Fulton and others, they got out there and they began to say that they know me and they spoke on behalf of my character and the fact that I always try to operate with integrity. And I'm going to continue to do my work. And I wish everyone um, peace um, and, and, and whatever I can do to be helpful, I'm here. Last question I have for you. Um, it's very interesting. Um, the fragility of weak-ass black men. Um, I'm looking at some of these fools in our YouTube chat, whining, complaining, and, oh, black women have always gotten credit, and I'm going, y'all clearly have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Uh, I had some fool complaining, oh, Tamika said sexism is uh, much more rampant than racism, and I'm going, you probably are a dude, because you don't even want to acknowledge that sexism exists. And you, and you have to deal, you have to deal with, and I'll go ahead and say it, you have to deal with the misogyny of other black male leaders who, let's be frank, don't like seeing this many black women in leadership positions. What do you say to that young woman out there who is volunteering, who maybe wants to follow in your footsteps and others, uh, who is not as strong in dealing with that, in dealing with uh, the forces uh, of, of male uh, entitlement when it comes to leadership? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, and I, and I do want to go back to something you said about the racism, uh, sexism piece. I think it's really important, again, when, you know, we sort of listen to these clips um, and, and just automatically think or the worst of and don't necessarily understand the intentions of those who are speaking. Mm -hmm. I was being asked about Kamala Harris becoming president in 2020. To 2024, excuse me. I was being asked if I think that that's possible. And I had already talked about racism. And I, you know, of course, I talk about that all the time. And so when asked whether or not she might be able to become president, 
What I said was that, number one, um, the only way she will become president is if her record speaks for her, if she's actually done something to ensure that the black community uh, respects and, 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 and honors the work, the actual work, that she has a heavy load on her shoulders that we expect her to live up to. And then I went on to talk about how sexism is the double whammy and how sexism can be worse than racism because of the fact that when you apply both things, um, you have, again, a double whammy. You have something extra, something additional on top of the fact that you're black. So we already know that being a black woman or a black man is, the, is, is, is very, very difficult. It is the most challenging. It's awful sometimes um, when we think about the ways in which we are um, uh, discriminated against in this nation and, and have always been. But when you add the challenge of being a black woman, it makes it even worse. So, you know what? Guess what? Maybe I could have said it a different way. Perhaps, um, you know, the words that I use, if I was more like Dr. Malvo, I would have had a, a better flow in terms of how I was getting out my point. But if you know my heart and you know my work and what I have been doing and all the men that I have stood up for and fought for for so many years, the fact that that particular clip is taken so far out of context for what it is that I'm actually relaying is what I'm talking about. People mm -hmm. who really are looking for something negative um, because any everyone else because I call I call I call Mark Thompson I called a bunch of brothers I said I want you to watch this and I want you to tell me what you think do I need to respond or not and the, the reception that I received even from some of my toughest critics I think about my friend Tony Lindsay uh, who he, he and I we debate all the time about all of these issues and he was like you know I listened to it and I was I was a little confused and he said but I went back and I really listened to what you were saying, and now I'm listening to you talk about it, and I realized the point that you were making about the double uh, whammy, I guess, again, that we experience as black women. And I do deal with misogyny. I deal with it from um, other leaders. I deal with it from those who come into my comments and call me out my name, um, you know, those who, who use their platforms to consistently attack and uh oh, I don't know if I've lost you. No, you're still here. You're still here. Good. Something popped up on the screen. Um, you know, those who consistently attack and go after me, they use their pages on a daily basis to talk about me. Um, and, and I have to, I deal with it. And guess what? Actually, I don't deal with it. So the question that you asked about the young girl who's coming up behind me, I would say block and move on. When you see it, block them and move on. You have to keep going. We have a responsibility to do the work. No one gets to tell us that we're not powerful, that we have to dim our light, that we can't be out here as a leader. And also, here's the thing. This is the most important point, the most important point. Perfection is not reality. No one is perfect. Tamika Mallory's not perfect. Most of the critics and the haters, they definitely are not perfect. But what you have to look at is who's actually doing the work, who's on the ground, who is out there standing in the face of white supremacy, dealing with um, challenging police and having a target on your back because they know your real name, as my friend Teslin Figaro would say. She would say, hey, what? I don't know your real name. You're on here talking to me through a fake, fake profile, but I I'm actually out in the streets as Tamika Mallory. And so when I see the police, they know who I am. 
They know exactly who I am. And, and I have been targeted in this movement. And so I have to stay focused and keep going. Don't go back. Don't look back. Uh, you know, it's, it's the old, the Harriet Tubman statement. If you hear the dogs barking, keep going. You can hear them coming after you. Just keep going. And I'm ministering to myself as I say this. And as I continue to block all of them, because you know what? In the end, whatever they have to say about me, they need to find a way to do it better and outwork me. Simple as that, y'all. The book is called State of Emergency, How We Win in the Country We Built. Uh, the forward is by Angela Davis and Cardi B. Uh, actually, I got one last one. Tamika, I asked all authors this. Um, what was the wow moment? The wow mo When you're writing this book, the wow moment that caused you to go, oh, my God, it's unbelievable. It could have been something you remember. It could have been something that came about. Was there a wow moment for you? Let's see. It was so many. I think, first of all, the fact that I was like, uh, that I had all of the chapters outlined was a wild moment because it's a real job to actually sit down and do the work. Um, but I do think that, that that forward between Cardi B and Angela Davis is an important part of the book. It actually gave me inspiration because I kept writing knowing that I opened the book intentionally, drawing in every single person that I wanted to reach just by having Dr. Davis and Cardi B uh, to be in there, to set the intention, to have Cardi basically saying to Angela Davis, should I, am I allowed? Am I, am I welcome in this movement next to you? Um, you know, is there space for me? And to have Angela Davis take the time to sit and respond to Cardi, I know that that gives uh, a point of entry for, for Keisha, who maybe, uh, maybe she has two jobs, two kids, and she might be a stripper at night. Um, it has a space for Ray Ray, who might be on a street corner today, but because of what he found in this book, he realizes that there's a place for him in the movement. I wanted it to reach the doctor, reach the lawyer, reach the bus driver. I wanted everyone to find themselves in this book. And I think that the intention that was set with the forward helps to be able to do that. All right. Yeah. Again, folks, State of Emergency, How We Win in the Country We Built by Tamika Mallory. Tamika, always good to see you. Uh, get some rest. Keep swinging. Uh, and tell the haters to go to hell. <laughs> love you, bro. You tell him for me. You love know I you. will. I appreciate it, Tamika. Love you, darling. Thanks a lot. Folks, that is it for us. I want to thank Julian uh, as well as uh, Avis. Uh, I want to thank uh, Teresa as well, our panelists, for joining us uh, on today. I appreciate them joining with us. Folks, if y'all want to support what we do, please do so by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar you give goes to support this show and what we do. Uh, every single dollar. Uh, we, uh, next week, are going to be traveling to Fort Worth, Texas uh, to be with Deborah Peoples, a black woman who is running for mayor. It's going to be May 26th, uh, and so we're looking forward uh, to being uh, there uh, with the pastor there. Uh, we're going to have a drive-in rally. We're going to broadcast our show. Looking forward to that. Then we're going to February 27th. We're going to be in Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, for the 100th commemoration of the Tulsa race riots, broadcasting and live streaming from there as well. Uh, and so a lot of different things we got com coming up. We want you to support us in what we do. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing at least 50 bucks each over the course of a year. That's $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day uh, to support what we do. Cash app, dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal.me forward slash RMartinUnfiltered. Venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at RolandSMartin.com. Rolling at RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Uh, folks, uh, we are... Again, 
making it happen. And so we certainly appreciate uh, your support. Let me shout out to the folks at Black Brilliant uh, for sending me uh, this shirt, this black and gold Black Brilliant shirt. The one I had before is black and white, so I appreciate them sending this to me uh, in my alpha colors. All right, folks, that is it for me. I shall see you guys tomorrow right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Don't forget, uh, you can watch our previous content. Simply go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. All right, y'all take care. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.